Hello and welcome to the Women in Leadership podcast. I'm Angie Mazzetti. I suppose when you look at media as well, what goes on, you know, women only get a small percentage of airtime. Globally, women get about mid-20% of airtime uh, across radio, across television. So we're not used to hearing women's voices. And there's a kind of a piece of data from the psychology literature that says if women speak for more than 30% of a conversation, they're seen as dominating. That's Dr. Anne O'Brien, who's just published a book on women in the media in Ireland, based on amazing research that she's conducted in the Irish media landscape. Women talked a lot about even though they did the work, they would still have to negotiate their credit, they would have to negotiate their rate, they often weren't being paid the same rate as other freelancers doing precisely the same job as them. She believes there's a lot more to do in terms of the gender pay gap too. It's also interesting when you look at salaries within RTE, if you look at the 120,000 plus salaries, there are 15 men on that salary scale, but only seven women. If you look at the 100,000 to 120,000, again, there's twice the number of men as women on that scale. But then if you go right down to the bottom of the scale and look under 40,000, it's predominantly women. They outnumber men by two to one. One area Anne believes we need to address is valuing the role of women in making teams work better and smoothing relations on set and in studio. That there was an expectation as well, not just that women would look a certain way, but that they would behave a certain way. And a lot of that was around kind of care work, emotional work, you know, making sure everybody on the team was getting on, that if there was a row, the women would patch it up. If somebody was having a bad day, the women would soothe them and that they would basically grease the relational wheels of production all the time. But that was never taken seriously as work. It wasn't taken seriously as a skill. Well, I'm delighted Dr. Anne O'Brien, a lecturer in media studies at Maynooth University, is joining me today. You're very welcome, Anne. Thank you, Angie. Uh, you're a specialist in gender and media production, and you've just produced this fabulous new book, Women, Inequality and Media Work. And tell me, why did you write this book in the first place? I spent a bit of time working in television production and was very struck by how many fantastic women I worked with. But every so often, the gender inequalities that we all faced in that sector would become apparent. And I was very curious to understand what was the nature of gender inequality? How does it work? Where does it sit? And then what do women do with it uh, to survive it? but also to thrive in that sector and continue making work regardless of the discrimination and bias that they sometimes face. I'm interested in your use of that word survive. It's like something, a torture you have to go through. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of women who have worked in the media would say, well, it is a huge uphill battle and you are battling almost every day, even though you might love your job. Was that your experience of what you found? Yeah, there is very strong structural patterns to the places that women work in the industry and the places that they don't get to work. So typically women will, you know, on entry into media industries, there was a great story told by a kind of trainee director who was always very clear she wanted to direct and ended up working on an internship with a production company. And she said it was phenomenal. Every time a new piece of camera equipment came in the door, the guys would show the equipment to the other guys. And there was no presumption that she would be interested in directing, even though she was very crystal clear and very articulate about the fact that she wanted to do this. There was an expectation on her instead that she would do more of the support type work. So, you know, production managing, production coordination, kind of minding of teams. And that's very much a strong pattern there. So women would end up working in production roles, oftentimes in support roles, while men tend to still be uh, dominant in technical roles and in roles then that would lead to things like directing. 
Anything else in the structure area that you discovered? Yeah, the structures work. There's kind of those glass walls between, from one roll to another, but there's also that glass ceiling still. So the European Institute for Gender Equality did a big study on media inequalities across Europe in 2014. And the figure they came up with for the participation of women in leadership roles in Irish media was 12%. So there's a glass ceiling in terms of women in senior decision-making roles uh, still in media industries. Did you discover anything in, in the national broadcaster? You know, they did a, a big, you know, gender audit. What did you discover there? Uh, their audit is really interesting. But, if you know, they would claim to have 50-50 gender equality in their workforce, uh, which they do. But if you parse it out in terms of technical roles and production roles, there would still be more of an 80-20 split going on there. So this, And that would be a global pattern. So that exists at a European level and internationally. The research would show that that's fairly typical situation. What's interesting about RTE was looking in particular at the pay gap. Um, they have claimed that they have a 4% pay gap. But when they did that research, they pulled out all of the kind of top 10 presenters because those figures would very much skew the data. Only three of the top 10 presenters are female. It's also interesting when you look at salaries within RTE, if you look at the 120,000 plus salaries, there are 15 men on that salary scale, but only seven women. If you look at the 100,000 to 120,000, again, there's twice the number of men as women on that scale. But then if you go right down to the bottom of the scale and look under 40,000, it's predominantly women. They outnumber men by two to one at that level. So it's very clear that there is a big issue with gender equality still in the national broadcaster. I think it probably reflects most jobs. It's what they call a scissors diagram, isn't it? Um, you know, that happens in academia as well. And it happens in banking. That you tend to find the women at the lower um you know, echelons and uh, the men at the higher, no matter what, whether they're on air or off air in broadcasting or and it's it's, why does that happen, do you think? I think a lot of it is tradition, how things have happened in the past. I think it's difficult for women to break into male dominated roles. So if women are doing leadership in male dominated contexts, I think it's harder for them to do it. Um, and they just you can't see the role models there or you don't have the women as sponsors. You don't have women necessarily higher up in your grade. Uh, you know, it's unusual to see a woman camera operator over 40 years of age. You just won't see them. Um, and then a lot of women leave some of them because of childcare issues and some because of other more complex bias discrimination. There's a push and pull between trying to juggle all of the responsibilities, the work culture and those structural inequalities that kind of can push women out of the industry. And I suppose it's a male model of work and it's geared around male being free to go and come as they please and not be responsible for childcare. Is is that what you'd find? Particularly in creative industries, there's this whole kind of discourse and mantra about being passionate about your work and being dedicated to your work and putting it first, which privileges, you know, people that don't have other care responsibilities. So women in film production are expected to work long hours. There's a very rigid separation of work and life. You don't bring stuff from home onto set which is all fine and dandy, but there was a study done by the National Women's Council called Who Cares, which shows that women in Ireland do 76% of all care work. So straight away, women and men are not on a level playing field in media industries. And I suppose, as you say, Angie, other sectors do show these patterns as well. But what's really important about media and really important about cultural industries is that these are the industries that are telling our stories. 
These are the industries that shape how we express who we are. And so it's vitally important that women's voices are included and that there's diversity across things like race and ethnicity and class as well, because those are also problematic. And just getting on to what you're saying, you know, having women's stories told also by women. I mean, did you find anything that are men good at telling women's stories and do they get the same opportunities to tell women's stories? And do women get the opportunities to tell men's stories? I think we have a long tradition of men telling women's stories and women are very adept at reading how men tell our stories. And there's kind of funny anecdotes with, you know, talking to script writers, interviewing them for the book where they'd say, you know, I can't believe men can get away with writing women this badly. And yet it does. It flies. It's accepted. And we've all seen those films where we kind of roll our eyes and think, yeah, right. No woman would ever do that in a million years. I can um, think of several. And it's, it's one of my, yeah, I'm not going to go into it here, but it's like, why would you put in such a horrific scene? Exactly. <laughs> no yeah. woman ever thinks like that. Yeah. But what a lot of women, particularly women directors, because they're already a rarity. So in, between 2010 and 2015, in terms of the public funding that went to film, only 18 percent of those films were directed by women. So already is this for the film board, this is funding from the film board. So public money used in Ireland to fund uh, film and only 18 percent of that went to women directors. So being a woman director, you're already a bit of a rarity. And some of them would have talked about, you know, being up for being considered for a particular production and funders just vetoing it because it was a man's story. And there was a sense that women would never be able to tell the man's story. You know, and Hurt Locker is the only exception to that rule that keeps getting pulled out in terms of Catherine Bigelow having directed that one. But in general, women directors were clear that they did face that gender bias, that they kind of had to prove that they could tell the story, even if it wasn't in the sort of softer, artier end of filmmaking. And similar stuff went on for women working in television who would talk about how, you know, on features or daytime programming, they would always get the light and fluffy material. I remember that happening in RTE when I was there. Yeah, Yeah, Anything that was kind of serious or kind of political or involved sports would straight away go to the male presenter. Coming on to uh, presenters and that, you know, is there... Is there an, uh, an expectation that women should be very feminine on television and really a guy can just turn up in his shirt and tie and, you know, look halfway decent and dust the, you know, the dandruff off and he'll be grand. You know, I remember, you know, when I was reading the news gazillion years ago, my brother coming over from the States and said, you know, why do you have to look so like, you know, overly serious and, you know, have your hair just quaffed and made up? And all, why do you have to look so much like that. There's a certain expectation from women presenters, women news readers to look a certain way where there isn't the same expectation on the men, is there? It's true. And women presenters that had kind of male co-host talked about the expectation on them that they would always look very slick, that they would always be very polished. But the wardrobe budget they got was minuscule compared to the Louis Copeland suits that were arriving in for their male co-presenters. So the women were expected to produce this look, but to do it as if it has no kind of economic consequence, as if it's something that comes naturally to them. And this was something that kept coming up, that there was an expectation as well, not just that women would look a certain way, but that they would behave a certain way. And a lot of that was around kind of care work, emotional work, you know, making sure everybody on the team was getting on, that if there was a row, the women would patch it up. If somebody was having a bad day, the women would soothe them and that they would basically grease the relational wheels of production all the time. But that was never taken seriously as work. It wasn't taken seriously as a skill. 
there was one producer who talked to me about how she negotiated with kind of hardline paramilitaries to get access to make a documentary. And the commentary subsequently from commissioning editors was how, you know, she had used her feminine wiles or, you know, they talked to her because she was a woman, not because she was a really good negotiator. Uh, so a lot of the skill, a lot of the emotional intelligence, a lot of the kind of collaborative capacity that women have that they bring to work gets made invisible as something that sort of comes naturally to us. And so in it's as not much valued. As, exactly. Yeah, it's not valued. It's not even seen. It's made invisible. So it's not rewarded. It's not part of the formal workload or job description, but it's still very much expected of them. And if women don't do that work, they get a pushback from that. You were mentioning earlier on the uh, just want to move on to talking about the Me Too. There's a perception that since waking the feminists and Me Too, that it's all fixed now, mm-hmm. you know, that the, the film board have brought in their that they've brought in their gender action plan and that the uh, Broadcasting Authority of Ireland have brought in monitoring and that really, you know, things should get better from now on. But my perception, and it's only mine, is that there's a long way to go yet. Would you agree? Absolutely. There's a real big risk when, you know, it was sort of entertaining at a level while I've been working on this research since 2011. And it was almost as the Harvey Weinstein Me Too story broke, everybody was catching up with me. Suddenly everybody was talking about gender inequality in the media, uh, which was uh, really interesting in a lot of different ways. And of course, we had our own situation in Ireland with Grace Dias and challenging the gay theatre. And so there was interesting parallels in time of in terms of where Ireland is situated globally as part of that story. And a lot of the women I interview in the book are working in the global industry as well. So they're very internationally networked. Uh, so there, they were very much part of that story. They were able to tell about stories of sexual harassment. It didn't come up as much as you might think. Um, And while it's the obvious site in which people can see the inequality and the unfairness, there's a hundred other ways in which the industry is also unfair. So it's not just that we need to fix sexual harassment. But that question of uh, do we think it's all done now did come up. I was really interested in asking the women, what do they do with these experiences of inequality? And what I realised was when I would start to talk to some women about gender, they would completely deny that it was an issue. So there's one woman in particular who was working in a very male dominated department and she was literally the only woman there at times, but she really didn't see gender as an issue. Um, And it was really difficult to get her to talk about it. She was just in total denial that it had anything to do with her and that everything was just uh, she would get it on merit. So that that was one reaction was to kind of neutralize gender, to be gender neutral on things, to not see it as a problem. And then there was another reaction where women could see, you know, it was going to be harder for them as women, but it was up to them to achieve. So that sort of internalisation of a very neoliberal self-disciplining discourse that, you know, if I just do it well enough, if I do it twice as well as the boys, I'll be taken half as seriously and my career will progress. There was that discourse. There was also kind of a post-feminist sensibility, which other academics like Ros Gill would write about a lot, which talks about, you know, feminism was something we did in the 70s. Now we have equality of opportunity. Everything's great. We no longer need to address this issue of gender. And then there was a third grouping of women who could see it really clearly, could see, yeah, that was because I was a woman. And what I talk about a little bit in the book is what they do with that. So they see themselves as insiders because of their expertise. They're doing the work, they're getting on with it, but they also see how they're excluded because of their gender. So they walk this really kind of liminal space where they're insiders, outsiders all the time. Um, 
And they, they, that's kind of how they managed to get on with it and to survive it. How, what do you mean by they're excluded? In what ways would that be evident? The very subtle things like in the media, you know, the work culture where that bias around, oh, maybe you can't direct this because you're a woman. Women talked a lot about even though they did the work, they would still have to negotiate their credit. They would have to negotiate their rate. They often weren't being paid the same rate as other freelancers doing precisely the same job as them. Um, I'm surprised you're saying that about the credit. I would have thought that was negotiated well in advance and it was just done. It would normally be negotiated well in advance, but then there would be a reneging on it towards the end of the production where women who might thought they were getting a producer director credit only got the producer credit or if they were looking for a producer credit, they might only get associate producer um, and camera operators who might have directed a documentary, for instance, the credit for directing would go to the male presenter to give him more ballast and credibility. Women talked about, you know, hearing that, well, you know, we need a male voiceover for this documentary because it'll be taken more seriously. Uh, so there's still those very traditional notions that somehow men will be taken more seriously and have more gravitas. It's like they're embedded in, isn't it? Mm, yeah. yeah. Well, when I suppose when you look at media as well, what goes on, you know, women only get a small percentage of airtime. Globally, women get about mid 20 percent of airtime. Uh, across radio, across television. So we're not used to hearing women's voices. And there's a kind of uh, piece of data from the psychology literature that says if women speak for more than 30% of conversation, they're seen as dominating. So it's that piece about rewarding acceptable femininity. You know, don't say too much. Don't be seen as trouble. Don't, whatever you do, play the gender card or complain about gender bias or gender discrimination because then you're seen as trouble and problematic. Mind you, I'm a great believer in throwing the odd wobbly every now and again. And I only discovered that later in life. But really, my recommendation is women throw an odd wobbly every now and again. It works wonders. People actually start <laughs> treating you seriously. Um, I just want to move on to something you, you wrote here about culture. And it's coming back to what you said earlier on about, um, you know, with even within feminism, there's there's subgroups of people. And you have a quote here uh, in the culture section. Another director similarly regretted not addressing sexual harassment she'd experienced in her 20s as she described I would have experienced sexual harassment a lot most of this occurred around the time I came out as a lesbian men always men on the business side rather than the creative or technical side thinking they're being funny saying things to you guys telling me I needed a good fuck it must be really difficult and yet you see some really strong lesbian women because they don't give Mm. And, you know, that woman went on to be very, you know, a real powerhouse in terms of her career and its development. Um, And I think it's interesting that in middle age, we can look back on our younger selves and think, well, why wasn't I more forthright? Mm. But sometimes I think we have to remember the context in which we experienced those things. And when you're starting out or you're younger in industry, you're only on, you know, oftentimes very precarious contracts. You go from one job to the next. Media industries very much trades on reputation and being seen as being good at the job, but also being easy to work with. And women were very careful to guard that reputation and not to be seen as difficult or problematic. And so they would do a lot of work around being likable and staying likable. And part of that was absorbing those kinds of comments and just moving on from them. And kind of gritting your smile. Yeah. Yeah. And while that woman was looking back at maybe, you know, 20 years ago, currently younger women in industry would talk to me about how they wouldn't go out and socialise with male crew after a production because they wanted to keep this very clear boundary between them as workers 
workers and them as, as women, as people. And they felt that it might compromise them if they engage socially. And yet we all know that it's in those social spacing, that the networking goes on, that the chats go on, that you get to have the conversation with people more senior to you about what you might like to do next in your career so that they think of you when a job comes up or a role comes up. And so women, because they're trying to police themselves around harassment, bias, end up missing out on those networking opportunities. It's a nightmare. So men just have to show up to the job. <laughs> yeah, there's this lovely image in the in the literature about a glass escalator. Men just stand on this invisible glass escalator that just moves up on this upward trajectory while women deal with these glass walls, glass ceilings, glass cliffs that constantly trip them up in terms of trying to just have the same sort of career. And it's a bit of a labyrinth. You know, you're going to go down a few blind holes now mm. and again, too. Yeah. Phenomenal. Um, you've come up with conclusions um, at the end of each section. You've one on culture, another on subjectivity, resistance uh, and change. What were the, the primary conclusions that you came up with that we mightn't be familiar with? I suppose the conclusions are that there are still very strong structural um, biases and structural impediments to women progressing in media work. There's still a work culture that is very demanding on them, that requires, that is also quite biased and sometimes outright discriminatory towards them, uh, that women do experience that gender inequality. They do see it for what it is, but that sometimes they can decide to act a little differently out of that. And so I would talk to women about how their practice uh, would be shaped by maybe their kind of gender experiences or feminist sensibilities. And so they talked about, I suppose, achieving a compromise with themselves at some level around thinking, you know, I like working in this industry because of collaboration, because of an ethic of care with people around me, because I want to make change and see change. And so they were able to kind of take an industry that was biased and turn it into something that worked better for them albeit maybe in a more marginalised way than the mainstream media. And I think, I suppose, the book comes to a somewhat feminist conclusion that, you know, women can look for gender equality and then all we really end up with is the same industry, but women included in it. Or we can look for a media that does things quite differently, that maybe puts a very different emphasis on what story is and how we tell it and how they should be made and who should be making them. And it calls, I suppose, for a much more radical uh, interpretation of a different way of being and a different way of doing media. Amazing. Um, tell me about resistance. What did you mean by that? Your chapter on resistance. I suppose it's that piece of women uh, resisting the expectations around them um, and becoming somewhat activist around media and change. And the last chapter of the book looks at a fairly recent period of change that came out of the Waking the Feminist moment in Ireland in 2015, when Susan Liddy, who's a lecturer in uh, universe in Limerick, uh, she was very proactive about making the connections between what was going on in the theatre and the similar things that were going on in the film industry. And she had done some research with the film board around gender and found that they really weren't very up to speed around the nature of gender inequality, the nature of bias. They were a little kind of dismissive and stonewalling around it. But around the time of The Waking the Feminist, Annie Durna became the chair of the film board and she was much more open to getting uh, that agenda to the forefront of the work of the film board. And so very quickly following on from The Waking the Feminist moment, um, the film board issued their six point action plan, which basically attaches funding to the personnel on productions and looks proactively looks for women to participate in filmmaking. 
Um, subsequent to that, then the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland also generated a gender action plan coming out of a European uh, Council of Ministers directive. And they also attach funding to sound and vision productions and make sure that there's uh, personnel there. And they have plans for particular slots for women's stories and women telling women's stories. So there was a whole kind of sea change of movement coming out of the writers guilds, the screen directors guilds, Susan Liddy's activism, Women in Film and Television Ireland had a chapter here as well. And so there's a whole lot of different organisations that are all working towards this agenda. And now there's policy in place. And so the next move needs to be the implementation of those policies and getting perhaps some of the bigger independent production companies on board with the idea that it's no longer acceptable to just make films by, for and about men. But it's a whole culture piece. It's like you're dragging them, kicking and screaming. And I know we have the carrot of the funding now as well. But how do you change culture? Mm. You know, what is is up to women? We know that male have the privilege and you know, there's a lot of very decent guys and who consider themselves very liberal and very feminist. But actually, when it comes down to it, they don't really get it because they're in a position of privilege. But to come to women, what can women do? You know, as, as instead of appeasing and working and being nice, how do we get the respect? You know, there was a woman I interviewed once, Catherine Kyo, and she said, you don't need to be liked. You need to be respected. And any time I say that to women, they get it straight away and they go like, I've been trying to be nice way too long. You know, but how do we get that respect piece in place in film and television and media? I think sometimes that whole discourse can be about doing it men's way and making it comfortable for them. Like that idea of respect could be quite a macho notion that go in there, you know, be dominant, have your voice heard. Like what's actually wrong with being nice? What's wrong with that ethic of care? What's wrong with collaboration? Um, What's wrong with less ego? Uh, And I think it's really important that women are conscious of not just falling into a very masculine way of being when they do their kind of media practice and when they do that work. It's a very hard question. It's one that's often asked. I teach this work with undergrad students and who are looking to kind of move into media industries after their graduation. They're like, what do we do now? And I said, well, look, you know, at least now, you know, it's not you. So I suppose it's really important for me that individual women don't internalize these challenges as something being wrong with them. And I think that's the big risk that younger, older women, even quite successful women, can really question themselves when they're faced with these challenges and these negativities about them and about their work. And if I can manage to get them to see that it's part of a bigger pattern, it's part of a social kind of structural uh, phenomena that's very gendered, and that it's not actually about them individually, I think that's one achievement. I do think we need to have even more policy in place around public money and about how it gets uh, spent. Women are half of the audience for all of this content. No more than with television content. Why do we only get one quarter of the airtime or 20% of the directing jobs? You know, that's inappropriate. I would quite like to have to only pay 20% of the license fee, (laughs) but I don't see that happening anytime soon. You know, so... Uh, I think there's still huge need for change there. And I do think we need to keep some pressure on for that change to happen and to keep continue to talk about it and to talk about gender inequality. I, I think it's a huge news story even now, looking back at the, the sports and the women's football and how that discussion is still going. Mm-hmm. And it's great. You know, like, you know, we they, I think the American team were saying that they bring in most of the money and yet they don't get paid nearly what the men get paid. Mm. You know, so that that discussion is and it's just the focus on it. And the, is there a need to continue to focus on it and every uh, yeah. aspect? 
I even watched football last week, which is probably a first, because, you know, there were sports commentators there who were women talking about what looked to me uh, like a fairly, you know, impressive uh, series of games and a really interesting league. And it was fantastic to see not just the American team winning, but being so vocal about the issues and being so upfront and willing to talk about them. That was really refreshing and inspiring. So I'm going to finish up soon, but just tell me, are you optimistic about the future for women in in media and in film? I think you can't but be optimistic because when I think of some of the work that some of these women have made, like the, they are some of my favourite films and their work that when I see it, it really resonates and really stays with me. Uh, I think when you see things like the football uh, being televised with all female you know, commentary um, panels, I think that's also uh, a great move. When you see women in positions of power within our state organisations willing to act and willing to really drive this agenda, uh, then yeah, I think there's a lot of room to be optimistic that okay. there will be better uh, productions and more equality and better terms and conditions for women in future. I always finish off by asking people what are their top three tips or even five if you can make it to five to encourage women to take on leadership roles, not to be there as support roles, but you know to go for those leadership roles. What would your piece, your golden nuggets of advice be to women? I think sometimes, and this is definitely speaking from personal experience, we look at the role and we think, oh God, you know, how would I ever be able to do that? But then you need to think of some not necessarily very brilliant man who's doing that role and think, well, could I do it that well? Um, I do think there's a huge pressure on women to be perfectionist about things and to make sure, you know, we have all of the skills we need and to have proven those skills before we go for it. I think we need to probably get a little bit better at chancing our arms. And then when there is a backlash and we're punished, move past it. You know, see it for what it is, that it's you're trying to take power, you're trying to own your own power and there will always be a pushback to that. Um, And I think sometimes if we can depersonalise those things and stay there, stay in the room, keep that, you know, keep engaging with it. That's really important. But I do think there is a need for collective action on it as well. It's not up to individual women to take this on and change the world. The only way we're going to change the world, I think, is to do it collectively. And as and I think that's what was so interesting about Waking the Feminists was a collection of women, a very spontaneous uh, but very well understood and very clear agenda for what was wrong and what needed to change and how that needed to change. And I think women need to kind of refine that sensibility. We saw it brilliantly with the repeal movement last year as well. When women really get an idea about wanting change, they can generate it. But I think the key to doing it is to do it collectively and to not internalise these things as your individual problem to be solved. Brilliant. What is your go-to piece of music when you want to get yourself motivated to to get out of bed in the morning, to go for your horse ride or whatever it is? What is Uh, your your big piece of music in your head? The most recent one that uh, stays with me that I really enjoyed was the Cure concert in Malahide. And it was finally getting to see Robert Smith in the flesh. And uh, it was them playing a forest. It was an amazing experience. Why does that resonate with you? I think it's just such a beautiful imagery within that song. It's very, you know, you kind of just get lost in it. And I probably wasn't the only person at that concert that was kind of reflecting back on 20 years previously and experience with that song directly as well. Um, So that would be a favourite.
Well done. Uh, thank you so much for being our guest today, Dr. Anne O'Brien, lecturer in media studies at Maynooth University, uh, who specialises in gender in media production. And she's just published a book, Women, Inequality and Media Work, published by Routledge. Routledge, where can you get the book? It's available through the Routledge uh, website directly, um, or if you want to, you can get it through Amazon as well. Anne O'Brien, thank you very much. Thanks, Andy. That's all from the Women in Leadership podcast for now. My thanks to my guest, Dr. Anne O'Brien from Maynooth University. Our thanks too to our sponsor, the Irish Institute for Training and Development. Do email us with suggestions or queries to info at womeninleadership.ie or you can follow us on Twitter. Our handle is leadingwomenpod. Until the next time from me, Angela Zetti, goodbye. Goodbye.